you, Brother Wynn. We had a wonderful time of fellowship yesterday, and I think we can look to the Lord to continue that fellowship with us throughout another day. His Word is good, and God is good, and it's just like God to deal with us after this matter. And so we want to look into the Word today to see what we can get out of it for our benefit, for our enrichment, for our enjoyment. So I want you to turn with me, please, to the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. And with your permission, I would like to read the entire portion of Scripture concerning the armor. There's only a few verses involved, but instead of just getting into chapter chapter 6, verse 15, at the beginning of the day, I think it might be well for us to just see the whole thing. So I want to look at chapter 6 and uh, verse 10, verse 10 of Ephesians 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that he may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all things. Shall we pray? Our Father, we're so grateful to thee for the gift of thy word. We thank thee for these revelations that have come to us through the ascended Lord Jesus Christ and through the Apostle Paul to us. And now, our Father, we ask for thy richest blessing on thy word. Here are some wonderful nuggets of truth. They are here for our enrichment and enjoyment. And we ask thee, our Father, to deal liberally to us this morning as we look into the Word and help us to meditate upon these wonderful truths, that in turn we might be uh, better prepared for the wrestling arena that's before us in every day of our Christian life. For we ask it in the name and for the sake and honor and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Three times we read the word stand in the context of the 15th verse, which is the verse that I have to deal with this morning because the subject is Stand therefore shod with the preparation of the gospel. Now I'm adding a little bit more to that, and I'm calling it the gospel of peace, just as the text itself says. Three times we have the word stand. Now the provision of the feet is brought before us in our text this morning in verse 15, and we have to stand with our feet until we get to the first indication of what we are to stand in. We have things provided for us for the whole man, but we thank God that here we have the feet provided for us. There is, I read in a commentary by Pastor Edward Drew in his sermons on the book of Ephesians when he preached on them in Patterson, New Jersey. And he said there are too many believers going around barefooted. But he was inclined to look at that particular verse, however, in one particular way, in a rather restricted way, and that is to, that we are always to be prepared, regardless of where we go, regardless of uh, what our surroundings might be, to preach the gospel of peace. 
Now, I think there's more to it than that, and I would like to get into the other aspect of it, that which concerns the wearer of the armor because it's there for his protection and not for the benefit of the individual on the outside of that armor. There is a time, however, to be barefooted, to go barefooted, and there's a time to be shod. And we have two people before us, I'm quite sure you realize, and first of all, that's Moses, and we find that there was a time when he was told to take the shoes off and off thy feet for the ground upon which thou standest is holy ground. Then we have the warrior here, and he is told to be shot with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's wrong for the warrior to be barefooted, and there is a time when it's wrong for the saint not to be barefooted. Moses stood in the presence of the Lord, and anything on his feet, in a condition like that would indicate or imply that he did not have to have the standing that's provided for him in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we find that there he stands in something of his own making, in something of his own providing. And when we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ stand in the presence of the Lord positionally, we thank God that we stand in all the perfections of the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, God is providing something for us so that we won't go barefooted through this life as wrestlers. You see, in chapter 2 and verse 6, we have in the book of Ephesians the fact that we have been raised and seated with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, seating denotes resting. So we find resting saints in the second chapter, but wrestling saints in chapter 6. And this morning while I was sitting for time to go by in the motel, I was thinking about the particular place that the armor has for the believer in chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians. I thought of the first three chapters of that wonderful book in which we have some wonderful objective truth concerning the believer's relationship to the person of our Lord Jesus, concerning his positions and possessions in Christ. And then I thought of the fact that in chapter 6 you've got the challenge put before the believer to go in for these things, that his right to them is going to be contested by the enemy. And then I thought of the two books immediately following, Philippians and Colossians. And it seems that we've got this in the sixth chapter, after reading three beautiful chapters concerning objective truth, in order to say to us, as it were, how do you like what I've given to you so far? Now, if you like it, there's a lot more where that came from. And so let's get into the book of Philippians, but you've got to wrestle for it. You're going to be contested by the enemy. And every time you try to avail yourself of a precious truth in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to consider the arena, because Satan is not going to allow you to get into his sphere of things without contesting our rights to what God has said is ours. Now, taking the word preparation, I looked up the Moffat translation, which to me is not too popular, but it's the only one that gave me something different other than the word preparation. He has, and have your feet shone with the stability of the gospel of peace. Now, I don't think we're going to find fault with that. With the stability of the gospel of peace. Now, the purpose of the gospel of peace is to impart peace. We find that the peace that is imparted is imparted in two ways. 
First of all, to the believing sinner. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have that peace that comes to the saints. And I would like to read just a few verses of Scripture that would give us an indication of what kind of peace that we can prepare for and that will stabilize us as wrestlers and not simply as resting saints. There are a lot of people like to be in the second chapter, but they don't want the sixth chapter. And here we find that God has made a provision for us. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 16, now I'm just, I'm not, uh, well, we can take the time to turn to them, but you see, I've got one of these uh, companion Bibles and I find it very difficult to find my place in it. In 2 Thessalonians, and chapter 3 and verse 16. Here is a lovely verse for believers. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. And then in Philippians chapter 4 verse 7, a very well-known portion of scripture with each of us. Philippians 4, verse 7, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then we, that familiar one in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3, Thou wilt keep him in per perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. I looked up the word preparation in W.E. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. And I wrote down what he says in that dictionary. He says the Greek word denotes A, readiness, B, preparation. It also has the meaning of firm footing, as in the Septuagint of Psalm 89, 14, where justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne is changed to read righteousness and judgment are the foundation of thy throne. W.E. Vine adds, if that is the meaning of Ephesians 6.15, the gospel itself is to be the firm footing of the believer, his walk worthy of it, and therefore a testimony in regard to it. Reference is also made to the word ready, translated from the same Greek root word and used in Titus 3, verse 1, where it says to be ready to every good work. Because of this meaning, some would place emphasis on the saint's responsibility to be ready to preach the gospel of peace at all times, under all circumstances. Whereas the context in Ephesians chapter 6 would show it rather to be the warrior's preparedness or readiness to provide personal protection in the wrestling arena. Now, I would not minimize the need for the preparation of the gospel today. That would be a sermon in itself. And I think as we listen to the present-day evangelists and those who carry on a series of meetings in the gospel, we come to the conclusion that there is a lack of the proper preparation of the gospel for today. People are so thoroughly confused with what the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they mixed it so thoroughly with the part of the gospel of grace that it leaves nothing else but confusion in the wake of their preaching. It's hard to find a person today who doesn't make a profession. 
And yet it's a strange thing among those who make these professions, a vast number of them don't even know where to find certain books in the Bible. We have a lot of visitors coming to our church because it's on the lake, at the Bolshoe's Lake. And there are people that come from Kansas City and Springfield and St. Louis and far off places, big cities and little towns and so on. Almost all of them have a profession. Almost all of them have been baptized into some church. And when I call on people to open their Bibles, they begin with the book of Genesis, even though I'm in the New Testament, they don't even know where Matthew is. And they start looking around like this, and they don't know where the books are. But if you ask them whether they've been saved, yes, they have been. They've been exposed to some kind of a gospel, and yet they have no interest in pursuing the word. They have not gotten acquainted with the books of the Bible. And it almost seems surprising that, like lately, I've been asking the people to open their Bibles to the book of Acts. And a lot of them don't know where the book of Acts is, and then they seem to be surprised that it's not spelled A-X-E instead of A-C-T-S. <laughs> now, the present-day gospel, mixed with the gospel of the kingdom, producing the kind of converts that that would produce, and having absolutely no desire whatever to go on in the ways of the Lord, or to possess their possessions in Christ, we have today a large number of people, so-called believers, who don't know what it is ever to be in the arena. First of all, I believe that they've never been born again, a good deal of them. And if you listen carefully to the kind of gospel that's being preached, I think you would come to that same conclusion. I think our text has in view the personal protection of the wrestler. Now, we should not be surprised that there would be a confrontation with the enemy shortly after being saved. These people who have entered into false professions and have been exposed to a mixed gospel of kingdom and grace, they never seem to have that confrontation. And in spite of the little that they know, they always know that I am wrong in believing in one baptism, they always know that I'm wrong in the things that I teach, and they'll never come back a second time. Although they don't know where John 3:16 can be found in the Bible, and maybe they can quote two or three verses, and that's about the sum and substance of their knowledge of the Word. I believe that there are two reasons why we can expect a confrontation with the enemy for which we have this particular armor provided. First of all, we have been delivered from the power of darkness and have been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. With your permission, I would like to read one page in Pilgrim's Progress. I think Pilgrim's Progress is a lovely book, and I think uh, our brother John Bunyan knew an awful lot of truth back in those days, and we don't find very many people in that particular era that had as much truth as he had, apparently. Here we find that after Christian came to the house called Beautiful, and he slept in the bedroom called Peace, he was outfitted with the armor from the king's armory and then sent on his way down the hill where he had a slip or two because he wasn't used to wearing that armor. 
He gets down to the valley of humiliation, and then there's a fiendish individual called Apollyon that crosses his pathway. Thus far, no father, you know. Here is a man who is set on pilgrimage. He's been to the cross. He's lost his burden. He's been given the blessings of some of the teachings of the Holy Spirit. And now he gets to the place where he has a confrontation with the enemy. Here's a bit of the conversation. Apollyon, whence come you, and whither are you bound? Christian, I am come from the city of destruction, which is in the place which is the place of all evil, and I'm going to the city of Zion. Apollyon, by this I perceive that thou art one of my subjects, for all that country is mine, and I am the prince and god of it. How is it then that thou hast run away from thy king? Were it not that I hope that thou mayest do me more service, I would strike thee now at one blow to the ground. Christian, I was born indeed in your dominions, but your service was hard, and your wages such as a man could not live on, for the wages of sin is death. Therefore, when I was come to years, I did as other considerate persons do, look out if perhaps I might mend myself. Apollyon, there is no prince that will thus lightly lose his subjects. And that's one thing we have to remember. And if we have really been born again, it's not going to take long before Satan takes that into consideration and he's not going to lightly lose us. Neither will I as yet lose thee, but since thou complainest of thy service and wages, be content to go back. What our country will afford, I do here promise to give thee. Christian, but I have let myself to another, even to the king of princes, and how can I with fairness go back with thee? Apollyon, thou hast done in this according to the proverb, change the bad for a worse. But it is ordinary for those that have professed themselves his servants, after a while to give him the slip, and return again to me. Do thou so too, and all shall be well. Christian, I have given him my faith and sworn my allegiance to him. How then can I go back from this and not be hanged as a traitor? Apollyon, thou didst the same to me, and yet I am willing to pass by all, if now thou wilt yet turn again and go back. One more paragraph. Apollyon finally says this. Then Apollyon broke out into a grievous rage, saying, I am an enemy to this prince. I hate his person, his laws, and people. I have come out on purpose to withstand thee. And I think this is some substance of an early indication that we have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son and satan is not going to lightly take the change now i believe that he knows better than some of us believers know that he can never get us back again as part of his family and as citizens of his dark kingdom i believe he knows all about the eternal security of the believer i believe he knows that he has lost us for good but if he can keep us from having spiritual desires, he's going to do that. And if he can get us in the arena and keep us from getting those things that God says are ours, uh, ours in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to do it. He does not want us to enjoy what we have in Christ. And he's been very successful because there are a lot of believers apparently that's not enjoying being saved. They're enduring it. They don't want what ought to be theirs and could be theirs. And you can see where Satan has really gained a bit of ground in that area. But he can never take the individual back. I don't want you to think at all that I believe in any sense in the loss of the believer in Christ. He knows that. 
Secondly, I believe there's another reason why we can expect an early confrontation is because we are directed in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 where it says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. We have our Canaan as well as the people of Israel have theirs. They, like us, have had the world and the flesh and the devil to contend with. And I don't believe there's ever been a time when believers in any age had these three types of enemies. As far as the people of Israel concerned, I believe that Egypt represented their world. I believe the wilderness represented their flesh. And I believe Canaan represented the place where you have to do battle with the enemy. Now, I don't think the Bible gives us any indication of the fact that we have to wrestle with the world. Neither does it indicate, I believe, neither does it indicate that we wrestle with the flesh. Love not the world, abstain from fleshly lust with which war against the soul. That's our position there. But it's possessing our possessions in the heavenly where we have hand-to-hand -hand combat with the enemy. The people of Israel had nothing to do with their deliverance from Egypt. We remember what it said before they ever got into the wilderness, stand still and see the salvation of God. God left that up, absolutely nothing up to them. Of course, they took the animal, killed it on the, tenth, or on the 14th day and applied the blood to the doorpost and the lintel of the houses. But as far as doing anything to escape the land of Egypt was concerned, it was all of God. And I believe that's true with us too. Because in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4, where it tells us that he died or he suffered in order to deliver us from this present evil world. Our deliverance from the world was not a work of our, of our own. And as far as the flesh is concerned, we've had lots of opportunities to show what the flesh is all about, but we don't wrestle with it. We are to consider ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto Christ. We have been taught the death-resurrection union with our Lord Jesus Christ. And the very simple truth of that death-resurrection union with Christ is something that Satan has kept from the minds of many believers in many Protestant denominations because they have liquefied Romans chapter 6. And when they read Romans chapter 6, they get water in their eyes. And that's all they see. And that robs the believer of what should be his in Christ. And that's a good starting point for the enemy. And small wonder that many believers in Christ don't know the positional truths that are theirs in Christ. And we find the book of Ephesians presents them to us in a wonderful way. In fact, it goes beyond death and resurrection. It goes to ascension with Christ at the Father's right hand. Now, our Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 encourages us to seek those things which are above. Those things, I think, which are above can be found in the Pauline epistles. Now, 
before I ever saw rightly dividing the word of truth. I took many a text out of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. But believe it or not, I was blind to the distinctive ministry of the Apostle Paul. And all of us who have been in the denominations and have seen the distinctive ministry of the Apostle Paul, we know that we never got it without being in the arena with the enemy. Because if there is anything he wants to deprive the present-day believer of, that is any idea of what his positions are in Christ and what his possessions are. Sometimes as I look back over my life and I think of those that spoke that I've been raised with, I see them in the same religious circumstances, still members of the same church, having no spiritual desires. When they go to church, there's no Bible with them. They're satisfied to have been made children of the covenant when they were infants and so on. And I must look like a heretic to them because I see that uh, as I went on to know the Lord and I sought to possess my possessions, I paid quite a price. There were changes of fellowships involved. Last week, a former Plymouth brother stood in the back of our church and said to a visitor, visiting Christian, he says, you know, it's a funny thing the way the Lord has led me. He says, out of an unconverted condition into a Baptist fellowship, and if there are any Baptists here this morning, I don't want you to think I have a gripe against you as a Baptist. This is a fellowship into which he was saved as I was in the Madison Avenue Baptist Church in Patterson, New Jersey. He says, and then the Lord opened up truth to me and I thought it was necessary to part from that fellowship and to join with another fellowship. And then he said, for some reason the Lord has led me down here to Branson, Missouri. And through a funeral, he says, I got acquainted with this church and the teaching of, the, of this church and he says, I changed my fellowship again. He says, I know that I am held up to ridicule by friends of mine who would never consider such changes of fellowship, but neither would they consider a goal that God has set before them, the seeking of those things which are above where Christ sits at the Father's right hand. Now, Israel's Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 is written in Joshua chapter 1 verse 3. There it says, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given you. Now, I want you to notice that feet are mentioned in Egypt, feet are mentioned in the wilderness, and feet are mentioned here in Canaan. On the night of the departure, the night of redemption in the land of Egypt, we find that they were ready to go, ready to depart at the divine signal. They were girded about with their garments, they had shoes on their feet, they had a staff in their hand, ready to depart. In the wilderness journey, because of the nature of the wilderness, God provided lifetime guaranteed shoes for their feet. And now here it says, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given you. And I think you can take that and translate it into the New Testament language, because this is what God is holding out to us. And this has to be gotten from the heavenly. We have in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenly.
But their possession was much like ours, half-hearted. And by the time they should have had all of the land of Canaan properly under their possession and all the enemies routed from that land, we find that they had to be reminded that there was still much land to be taken. To some of those people, I believe, the enemy did appear as giants instead of grasshoppers. And I'm quite sure that we can say this morning that there are a lot of believers today who look at the enemy in just exactly that way. Now in Ephesians, we have a sampling of what God has for us in Christ. Therefore, I said at the outset that in chapter 6, we are as, we are as much as told that there is much more where that came from that has got to be wrestled for. Our Canaan is the Pauline truths that have been given to us after the book of Acts has run its course. And some of us have paid quite a price for what we enjoy in the person of Christ today. But there's been a lot of peace in our hearts through the pursuit of these possessions. I would hate to have the conscience that could have been mine had I rejected the marvelous teachings of his word. I went from one fellowship to another fellowship. I believe it had appeared to be rather ludicrous by my friends as I went from one to the other, and they look at themselves as having been stable all these years. The rest of this message is on side two. Please turn your tape over at this point. Then instead of looking at ourselves as weak and vacillating, we see them but stepping stones on the way to greater possessions, just as our brother remarked at our church last week. In the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 28, you know the verse as well as I do, that verse has taken new meaning, taken on new meaning, I believe, for all of us who have been in the arena. And God has been good to us and given us some of these possessions. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. For who he did foreknow them, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, who is the firstborn of many brethren. That verse has taken on new meaning, hasn't it? Verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? There we have the word things again, because in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, and we know that all things. Verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? The circumstances through which we go. The experience that we have in the wrestler's arena with the enemy who would like to deprive us of our fortune in the Lord Jesus Christ. If God be for us, he can be against us. Verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors for him that loved us. And these are marvelous truths that God has given to us. In closing, I would like to give this benediction to the first 
which is the benediction again from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. It's a marvelous verse. Now the Lord himself give you peace by all means. The Lord be with us. There is so much more in Christ than we have ever had in the past, than we have ever gotten. And we can never get to the place where we can say, you know, I trust. But the God of peace will give us peace by all means. And it's a marvelous thing to be at peace with him. And the peace of God, the path of all understanding, shall keep our hearts. The Lord Jesus Christ said in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, in this world we shall have tribulation, but in me shall have peace. Not exactly the way it said, but take the whole verse and check out those words. In the world you shall have tribulation, but in me you shall have peace. Having your peace shall be the preparation of the gospel of peace. Not the peace of Romans 5, 1. Not the peace of Colossians 1, 20, and having made peace by the blood of his cross. But the peace that belongs to the believer that becomes his portion when he's going in for that which has been purchased for us and given so freely to us. And God has given us title to every last bit of it. And we don't want to be like so many professing believers today, where they're satisfied with just being saved. Satisfied with never being consigned to hell for all eternity. And I believe heaven's going to be the richer for our having obtained as much as we can of that which he purchased by his own blood. May the Lord bless this word to each one of us this morning.